0: Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot.
1: Oh my god, there was so much great paranormal news this week. Big week for paranormal news. I think so. I think so. Well, everybody was a little disappointed at what happened with that Russian radio signal. I was. Everybody's heart broke a little bit about that. <laughs> it was so exciting, and then and it was like people just forgot about it. <laughs> like, so and th- throw the wet blanket right on it. And they didn't realize that the signal was like just dis- not disproven or whatever, but that the story about the signal changed once they did for the research on that. And most people don't realize that because they just saw the original one. So if you didn't listen to the last podcast. Uh, wow, where we talk about radio telescopes wow. and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, Sounds like the Russian signal didn't turn out to be what everybody thought or hoped it was going to be number one or number two, the disinformation campaign continues and the new cover-up has begun. So, but the, anyway, anyway, but that's neither Exhausting. here nor there because um, if you guys have read the See You on the Other Side Top Paranormal Stories newsletter this week, you'd see some really cool stuff that's come out, uh, particularly the band The Misfits got back together. Glenn Danzig rejoined the band, uh, and they played at the Riot Fest in Denver, and everybody said it was a triumph. That's
2: fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that, because oftentimes it's very disappointing when bands get back together.
1: (laughs) Yeah, or when people talk about Glenn Danzig, too, like the last few things we see about Glenn Danzig, he's getting knocked out by somebody backstage. Or uh, it, it's like Glenn Danzig picking up kitty litter. Oh. Like people take pictures of that. Like Glenn Danzig <laughs> like, walking so, out of a place. That's terrible. <laughs> and it's, you know, Glenn Danzig walking out of Pet Smart or whatever with kitty litter. Isn't the same. Aww. So it's it, it's good to see Glenn Danzig back in the limelight, the misfits back together. I that's think right. that's, that's one exciting story. Another exciting story is this new book called The 37th Parallel by a guy named Ben Mesrick hmm He's the guy that wrote the social net- the book that The Social Network was based on. Remember that movie Mark Zuck- about Mark oh, Zuckerberg? Of course. Okay. That was big. It was. It was a good one, too. So Ben Mesrick has been on the Media Blitz this past week. He was on Mysterious Universe. He was on Coast to Coast. They've picked him up in, in the mainstream because he's a mainstream writer that did all this research on this guy that had become obsessed with cattle mutilations, UFO abductions, Yay. And everything on the thirty seventh parallel map wise you know and he's he's seeing these connections, and the big story is how this is a guy who was a skeptic, Ben Mesrick, and after working on the book, became a believer, and so it's pretty now that's that's exciting, yeah that is exciting it's always exciting <laughs> when people in, in the mainstream kind of kind of give it some credence, yeah,
2: especially when somebody turns the corner mm-hmm. like from a non believer you know? right, and they
1: turn a corner. <laughs> And something else that's really funny, we were talking about the Russian radio telescope signal before, but there's also this Russian news organization that lately has become obsessed with UFOs. Like, all they write about is UFOs. Really? Especially American UFO stories. Oh, okay. So why are the Russians so obsessed with American UFO stories? And they think it's going to distract Americans from paying attention to Russia. Like, it's a... (laughs) It's a Cold War propaganda topic. Oh. Uh, you know, and it's it's super sweet, and it, it's just funny that um, people have been picking up on it because a whole bunch of websites have been running with these Russian UFO stories about things that are happening in the United States. And you're like, why are they? Why do these <laughs> Russians care about it? It's because yeah. they're using it as like another disinformation technique. So, well, we made a joke before about oh, the space signal. You know, that's just. Disinformation and blah blah blah, it's a hoax cover up, blah, blah blah. Um, no, people are using uFOs as like propaganda. governments are using it in wow. today's world, so that's why I, I thought there was a lot of important news in this past week and, and if you guys have not heard the news, I sound like a mormon missionary have you, have you Have you heard the good news, wendy <laughs>
2: Well, you're like a paranormal missionary. I am I like guess, a paranormal missionary. In a way.
1: <laughs> and the good news is that you too can enjoy these paranormal stories <laughs> for free in your inbox every week by going to othersidepodcast.com/subscribe. And uh, we read all of the weird stories so you don't have to and you just get the best stuff and it's fun. So make sure you check that out. And we've had other good news, Wendy. Yes, we have, Mike. And uh, maybe you want to fill in our friends with that. I'm assuming you're
2: referring to the good news of our Patreon community growing.
1: Always. That is the (laughs) best news. Like sometimes somebody's like, hey, did you hear the news today? And if it doesn't involve our Patreon community, most of the time I'm like, it can't be that good. So we'd like to thank our new patron, Joe. Joe, thank you for joining us on the podcast.
2: A very enthusiastic friend and listener. So we're happy to have you in the club and looking forward to lots of activity that we have planned here for the patrons, for everybody, all of our patrons who are wonderful. And if you'd be interested in joining that community, you can do so at othersidepodcast.com slash
1: donate. That's right. Joe Mama, we're so happy to have you here on the other side. (laughs) So thank you for signing up. That's awesome. Yes. And uh, we had another new patron this week, but he declined to be named. He chooses to remain anonymous. So if you are listening, Miss Anonymous patron, <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> very much as well. Speaking of anonymity, people often talk about how in our wired age, you can't really be anonymous. Yeah. You know, people know by your cell phone, like wherever you go, you're tracked. Right. We're giving away that information. I got all excited. I'm signing up for the iPhone 7 this week. I want to get the new oh, phone, right? you love it. You're, this is like excitement time for you, isn't it? It is, because I love the new phone. And I know it's going to be in my pocket. And now Apple is just going to sell the government wherever I am at all times. <laughs> I know that I'm being paranoid. But at the same time, wherever we go, the information is tracked. Like this conversation, yeah. like... Our ISP, internet service provider knows where exactly I am, where exactly you are, what time we engaged in our Skype conversation,
2: and what we had for breakfast because we talked about it earlier. No, we,
1: <laughs> actually, I use my fitness pal, so they are going to know that. They do know what, they I do had know for what breakfast. you They know exactly what I had for breakfast.
2: They know how much you weigh. They know how many right. calories you've burned.
1: They know that I had my third beer at 1:30 in the morning last oh, night. Man. So they know every single thing about wow. me. And when you talk about being paranoid about anonymity and everything, well, there was one guy who kind of presaged uh, this type of environment we live in, and that, that's the author Philip K. Dick. Yes. I've always enjoyed Philip K. Dick's work. I think it's great, but I love that science fiction from the 1950s, 1960s. I always read it, the short stories and stuff as a kid, Philip K. Dick, Robert Heinlein. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke were always some of my favorites. And he, in particular, I mean, if you guys are not familiar with Philip K. Dick's work as an author, then you might be familiar with the movies that he inspired. Yes. So you've probably seen Blade Runner, Wendy.
2: Yes, indeed, I have. Okay.
1: It's a good one. That's a great one. There's like four different versions of it.
2: And you know if I've seen it, it's (laughs) it's pretty well known, right? Because...
1: Well, you see stuff yeah,
2: just takes me a while.
1: But Blade Runner is very mainstream. Yeah. And uh, of course, it's a classic. Ridley Scott, 1982. Harrison Ford at his stud right. list. Right. And I mistakenly thought that
2: Arnold Schwarzenegger was in that movie. I was excited because I thought we were going to have a return of our recurring character on the show here. <laughs> no, However, that- um, he was considered for the role, but he was it was Harrison Ford.
1: Yes, Harrison Ford was so great in that movie, but I was in a different Philip K. Dick adaptation (laughs) known as The Total Recall.
2: That's it, that's it. That must be what I was thinking of. That's right.
1: (laughs) Oh, good.
2: I've not been denied of my Arnold Schwarzenegger fix today. Thank you.
1: Nine. The original story was (laughs) called We Can Remember It For You For Wholesale, but I made a movie called Total Recall with my friend Paul the Okay. And Total Recall's Like, when I saw that movie when I was 13 years old, it it blew my mind. Yeah. Did you read any of those books? I eventually read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which became Blade Runner. Uh Uh-huh. But I had read We Can Remember It For You for wholesale before I saw Total Recall. Oh, okay. But I didn't really realize that it was based on... I just knew Arnold was in a new movie that's set on Mars. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Okay, so Total Recall. uh, Blade Runner are probably the most famous... They also made a remake of Total Recall in 2011 with that Mr. Salty Pretzel, Colin Farrell. He is nothing compared to my body of the Mr. Universe, me. <laughs> did you see the Total Recall remake?
2: No, I did not.
1: Okay. It's, I don't know, it's not that bad. It's just, it's got a lot to live up to. It's, it's really oh, a yeah. different movie than the original. They could have called it something else completely. Colin Farrell does a fine job. Brian Cranston is the bad guy. So, nice. you, get, you get Walter White as the bad cool. guy in there. The Adjustment Bureau, a Matt Damon film with uh, John Slattery from Mad Men. Oh, what was his name? Roger from Mad Men, The Silver Fox. Oh, he's so great. Yeah, he is great. He's Tony Stark's dad in uh, Iron Man, too. Awesome. And The Adjustment Bureau is based on Philip K. Dick's story called The Adjustment Team. Uh, we go to Screamers is a 90s science fiction movie based on Philip K. Dick. I'm just, just going down the list. Like, there has been... So many adaptations of his work since Blade Runner, as compared to before then, he didn't have much going on. Yeah. So if you haven't read any Philip K. Dick, don't worry. You've heard of him and you've seen movies that his work uh, has inspired, number one. And number two, this episode isn't just about science fiction. He's had a real life paranormal experience. That <laughs> very, very intense. Yeah, I would say very, I mean, very intense. Poo-y. Actually, you know, there's a Philip K. Dick adaptation right now. Anybody with Amazon Prime? It's called Man in the High Castle, and it's set in an alternate history yes. uh, that the Nazis won the war, the Second World War, if you're wondering which war we were talking about. <laughs> Philip K. Dick, let's just get a little history on him. He's born in Chicago in 1928. He had a twin sister, Jane, that died only a few weeks after birth. And so that's kind of sad.
2: That's very sad.
1: His family moved to San Francisco Bay and he was in the same graduating class as Ursula K. Le Guin from The Wizard of Earthsea. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. Who? Ursula K. Le Guin. She wrote The Wizard of Earthsea. Oh. It's a, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a great like fantasy book. And it's uh, often hailed because it's one of the first fantasy books that features a non-white main character kind of thing. Oh, cool. Like we read it in 7th grade and stuff in uh Gotcha. English class. Aha, uh-huh. okay. So, interesting character. Some of his quotes like in my writing I even question the universe. I wonder out loud if it is real and I wonder out loud if all of us are real. <laughs> my preoccupation with these pluriform pseudo worlds. Now I think I understand what I was sensing was the manifold of partially actualized realities lying tangent to what evidently is the most actualized one, the one which the majority of us, by consensus gentium, agree oh, on. Parallel worlds? Yeah, so he thought that he was seeing parallel realities, and that's what he was writing about. And he was bringing the story of those parallel realities into this one, which is he called the most actualized one. Consensus gentium is just a word that means something we all agree on. So he's even talking about the matrix there. Wow. That we live, you know, we're basically living in a simulation. This is just the one that feels the most real okay? kind of thing. So he's got these far-out experiences, you know, these these far-out ideas in the 60s. Right. You know, even while he was working and alive, people thought he was a genius. He won the Hugo Award in 1963 for the Man High Castle, but he was still pretty desperate because science fiction wasn't mainstream at the time, at least in, in literature. It wasn't respected that much. And... He had drug issues, 1971, he turned his home into a drug den after a messy divorce, Aww. Um, amphetamines, Sad. sedatives, different kinds of pills, Ooh. tried to kill himself in 1972 oh, with a gosh. sedative over Right. So he's got a lot of complicated stuff. He chronicles a lot of this in his book, uh, A Scanner Darkly, which was, they made a movie of it with uh, Robert, uh, speaking of people that have had problems with drug abuse, Robert Downey Jr. was in it, uh-huh. Woody Harrelson. Uh, was in it. And if you guys haven't seen a Scanner Darkly, it's very talky, number one, so we prepared for that. <laughs> and number two, it's rotoscoped. What does that mean? Rotoscope is where they film the actors and then kind of make a a cartoon of them.
2: Oh, okay, that's cool.
1: So it it like uh, Take a, scan- on Me? A, l- a little bit like Take <laughs> on Me. That's I don't know if it's the same process you call rotoscop, but kind of like Take on Me. There you go. So be aware of that movie that's just a little different because of that rotoscoping and stuff. Uh-huh. Okay. But it's still a pretty cool movie. Um, but it's one of those movies that we should have seen when we were in college, Wendy, because then we would all talk um, about it. Like the rest yeah. of it would be like, like, oh man, like I can't believe what I just saw. So that's just a little history. So he had a man with a complicated life. He was often poor. You know, he even talks about how Robert A. Heinlein, who was a very conservative person, like ex-military. Just, you know, when you think of the counterculture of the late 1960s, you think of the hippies and free love and psychedelics. Robert A. Heinlein was the exact opposite. I mean, he was not Mr. Hippies. <laughs> okay. and, and Philip K. Dick was more part of that counterculture. Right. And Philip K. Dick dedicated a book to Robert A. Heinlein and said, Several years ago when I was ill, Heinlein offered his help, anything he could do, and we had never met. He would phone me to cheer me up, see how I was doing. He bought me an electric typewriter. I don't agree with any of the ideas he puts forth in his writing, but that's neither here nor there. Huh. One time I owed the IRS a lot of money. Heinlein loaned it to me. I dedicated a book to them in appreciation. He knows I'm a flipped out freak and he still helped me and my wife when we were in trouble. That is the best in humanity. Wow. That's really interesting.
2: Yeah. The two different personality types, kind of like, you know, the Houdini and Doyle kind of uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> different but- sides of the coin.
1: And I think that's great. It's, it shows that there was a fraternity to the science fiction world that even went around, like when we think of the 1960s and the 1970s, and you think of the clash of the hippies versus the establishment man. It's kind of cool that science fiction made it so that a guy like Philip K. Dick, when he was in trouble, could get help from somebody who was in the exact opposite of the political spectrum. So I thought that was a nice little tidbit. Yeah. All right, but we have to go into what happened to Philip K. Dick in, in yes. 1974. So he was recovering from having his tooth taken out and in a lot of pain. All right?
2: Oof. You've, you had to have a tooth removed once, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I just had a tooth removed this year. That's a brutal experience, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it, it sounded more brutal than it actually felt.
2: The, well, that's good. If you had to have one or the other, I'd rather yeah, have to just, hear
1: more than to feel more. You hear like, <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could hear it like, "Oh my God, oh, what are you guys doing?" Oh,
1: but I didn't feel. I didn't feel a thing. Oh, good. Okay. So actually, it was wonderful. You know, I, okay. I wouldn't call it a wonderful experience. Like I've had wonderful experiences. But the aftermath? The un- aftermath. I say it was a couple of days of soreness, but okay. because the because the nerve was gone. There was no pain. Ah, okay. Oh, interesting. Huh. So, so when, because the nerve was gone, there was no pain. And let me just qualify why I had to have my tooth removed. It's not because I didn't brush. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. Okay. I'm not one of those guys that doesn't brush. And it wasn't like in the front. So if you see me at like a conference or a, a Sunspot concert, I'm not going to look like a weird <laughs> toothless it. guy. It's just like I, I chew too much ice and that's what it was. And so I broke my back. There. Oh, fracture. Yeah, I fractured it. So, okay. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. Just eating too many almonds. also a warning. Don't chew your ice. Don't chew your ice. (laughs) So, but Philip K. Dick, he's in so much pain after uh, a tooth procedure. He calls for some medicine. The nurse shows up bringing the medicine.
2: Wow, door-to-door delivery.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like, well, this is back in the 70s in in California. And... She had like a fish symbol on her, so she was one. You know those fish symbols you see in the back of cars. Yeah. Okay. She had that, and he like said a like necklace, a beam. right? Mm-hmm. A beam of light came from the symbol, and like took over his brain. Yeah. Okay. What is that weird? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so he told his friends in letters that it was some kind of entity keeping. A violent phosphine activity. Okay. Phosphine means that it was knowledge that came from out of nowhere. Oh. It it did not seem bound by either time or space. Within my head, it communicated with me in the form of a computer-like or AI, artificial intelligence, system-like voice. Quite different from any human voice. Neither male nor female. And a very beautiful sound it was. The most beautiful sound I ever heard. So... He starts hearing this voice in his head. He describes it to an interviewer, Charles Platt, as, quote, an invasion of my mind by a transcendentally rational mind. It was almost as if I had been insane all of my life, and suddenly I became sane. Oh. I became a spectator, he said. On Thursdays and Saturdays, I think it was God. On Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I think it was extraterrestrials. Sometimes I think it was the Soviet Union— Academy of Sciences trying out their psychotronic microwave telepathic transmission.
2: Wow. All right. That's a lot of different things. Yeah. That's a lot of different people communicating with them
1: or entities. He hears this in his head. And, you know, what's funny is that uh, he even said it, it kind of made his life better. Like <sighs> he, he, he went to his agent to get uncollected checks. He fixed up his diet. That voice in his head told him to do smart things. Yeah, helpful things. He said it thought pure concepts without words, but it knew with ratiocination. I mean, okay, Philip K. Dick, (laughs) I got to say, what a vocabulary on this guy. No joke. Okay, so what's ratiocination? That is the process of exact thinking, reasoning. So it didn't need to reason, it just knew. Like, so we talk about empathic people that communicate with feelings. Yeah, yeah. This is how he said without thoughts, pure concepts without words. Okay. And part of that original, when that beam hit his head, he felt that he was in ancient Rome because the fish symbol that we see on the backs of cars, all right, that's the symbol the Christians would use to notify each other that they were Christian so the Romans wouldn't persecute them. So it was a secret symbol. So when he saw that sign and he had that secret symbol in his head, he felt like he was going through the experience of a Christian in Roman times. I see. Yeah. And then eventually, he had that voice in his head for a while and also had what he called a Greco-Roman spirit that he would share a consciousness with. It would get confused by modern life and wouldn't quite understand what was going on. Dick said that he could pick up the other's thoughts while he was waking up and falling asleep, and the Greco-Roman person felt that there was someone inside his head as well. You know, Philip K. Dick couldn't even drive sometimes because he said the spirit couldn't understand the pedals of his car. Oh my goodness. Right, and he had to explain it to his wife. You know, (laughs) and I think it was his fifth wife at the time, so it was his last one. (laughs) So what a patient woman she must have been. Indeed. (laughs) So, I mean, and he writes half a million words on this in letters and in journals, and he's constantly writing about it. A lot of it would turn up in his book, Valus. Valus is all about this artificial intelligence that communicates to people's minds. That's his last published book in
2: 1983.
1: Okay. But it's based on this experience he's having. The journals were eventually published in like 2010 as The Exegesis of Philip K. Dick. Exegesis exegesis is a word that means like an explanation of a religious experience. Uh And so it's a church word that people would use when they would have religious experiences and write about it like monks and nuns and saints would write their exegesis. So Philip K. Dick had his own of this religious experience where this Greco-Roman person in Roman times was living in his head, and he thought— it might be the prophet Elijah. All right. Okay. Who's the prophet Elijah? Je- <laughs> Did you ever see when Jerry Seinfeld hosted Saturday night live, there was a skit where they're having a Passover Seder, and the Passover Seder they leave a chair open. Symbolic. Oh yeah, I saw that one. For the prophet Elijah. And Jerry Seinfeld comes up and he's a total jerk. And, you know, he's like, Who are you? He's like, I'm the Prophet Elijah. <laughs> and it's a pretty it's a great skit. I'll have to put that in the show notes if you guys haven't seen it. If, I, if they let you link to Senator, Eli- sometimes they don't let you link to Saturday, let guess. But <laughs> Prophet Elijah is a character in the Old Testament who challenges the king of Israel and the king's wife, Jezebel, who they had abandoned the worship of Yahweh, the God of Moses in the Bible, and start worshiping Baal, an ancient god of thunder and rain. Baal shows up in a lot of exorcisms. <laughs> okay. It's got a sweet name. Baal, B-A-A-L. <laughs> Baal shows up in exorcisms, and he's just one of the demons. That's one of Satan's demons in, in the traditional Christian like hierarchy of hell. Okay. Baal. Yeah. I feel like we've talked about him before at some point. I think he's been in, in our conversations at one point, Wendy. So Christians sometimes think of John the Baptist as a reincarnation of the prophet Elijah. And so this is who Philip K. Dick thought he was the spirit of, because this spirit was so concerned about being persecuted by the Romans as a secret Christian and uh, Philip K. Dick even has the visions of uh, John the Baptist getting beheaded for being a Christian and he like lives through the experience. Whoa, that would be super scary. Right. He, I mean, he writes all this down That's cool. In the exegesis of Philip K. Dick. After Elijah just one day left him, after the spirit uh, the thing that was in his head just went away. He got depressed, even had thoughts of suicide. And so those thoughts wrote down, became a lot of his books, like right before he died. Valus, A Scanner Darkly, Radio Free Album Youth, The Divine Invasion, The Transmigration of Timothy Archer. They all have these like Christian elements in them. Yeah. So the science fiction goes religious in the end or has a. Re- It's science fiction's take on religion through Philip K. Dick because of his own paranormal experience. Interesting. And here, this is in his own words. I will never know really what did in fact happen. Some living, highly intelligent entity manifested itself inside me and around me. But what it was, what its purpose was, where it came from, I have tried a thousand theories and all work equally well. But at the same time, each theory leaves some datum unexplained. And I know this is not going to change. I have the impression that a master game player and magician and trickster is involved. Philip K. Dick, so if he, somebody told you this on the street, Wendy, what would you say? <laughs> yeah, I would, I would question the, the sanity. Yeah, for sure. Right. But, you know, we've had people who have channeled before, mediums before, and this is the same kind of thing. Like they say the spirit speaks to them. They say that they are visited; that they can hear it inside their head, and this is what Philip K. Dick heard. This author, who's given us so many great works, who uh, we talk about this a little in, a, in an interview we have coming up with uh, Dan Abella, who is okay. the uh, Dan Abella is the director of the Philip K. Dick Science Fiction Film Festival in New York City, and they have an international one now too. So it's in Europe and New York this year and they came on the show to talk about some of Philip K Dick's influence on films and stuff. Excellent. But we talk about how Philip K Dick like never had any money while he was alive. And if he was alive today with all of these adaptations of his work, I mean, he'd be rich like Stephen King or George R R Martin is now. You know, he'd be a wealthy man with so many adaptations of his work. Yeah. And so you just feel that at the end of his life he went kind of crazy. Yeah. But the cool thing is, you know, whether it
2: was him going crazy or, you know, whatever his experience was, the fact that he wrote it down and he was so descriptive, you read these things and it's very vibrant. You can feel what
1: he was feeling. And that's, Mm -hmm.
2: that's cool that he was able to document the experience that way, whatever it was.
1: Yeah. It's really unique. I think as far as modern, you know, you have a modern religious experience that's super detailed by someone who can write so well and right. detail it so And obviously we were talking about his vocabulary. Half the time I'm reading Philip K. Dick's letters, the exegesis, I have to uh, you know, define it. Yeah. You got to read it on an e-book so you don't have to have a dictionary sitting by your bedside. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, no, a, a, I mean, a fascinating character who we're still uh, living with his influence. Pop culture is, I mean, they're making a, bl- a sequel to Blade Runner so, I mean, Ridley Scott wants to revisit the world of Blade Runner. We got The Man in the High Castle running right now. Yeah. And then there's another adaptation being done next year in addition to some of these small films, and that's what we're going to talk about with our interview with Dan Abella from the Philip K Dick Science Fiction Film Festival.
2: All right, let's hear it.
1: Yeah, let's let's go to Dan. We're here with Dan Abella, who is the director of the Philip K. Dick Science Fiction Film Festival, and he's joining us from New York. How you doing, Dan?
3: Great, great.
1: All right, so let's talk a little bit about the Science Fiction Film Festival and how you got into it. Philip K. Dick obviously is someone who our listeners are, and me uh, are, is very interested in because loved his work and the movies based on it. So how did you get involved with the Science Fiction Film Festival?
3: Well, um, this goes I made a movie maybe about in around 2005 called The Final Equation, and it dealt with a character who lived in simultaneous realities. Uh, and uh, during the course of my uh, research, I came across an author, uh, Ursa, Ursula K. Le Guin, oh, yeah. who uh, Right, and she talked about uh, Philip K. Dick as being our uh, own homegrown Borges. Now, uh, Borges uh, was the famous uh, Argentinian writer, was a, a favorite a favorite writer of mine. And as soon as I heard that from uh, that quote, I I was intrigued. I um, decided to um, explore it a little bit, and I uh, started reading some books on Philip K. Dick and. Uh, I think the first book I picked up was uh, Valis, which is actually virtually the last book uh, in his, uh, that he ever wrote. So I kind of worked myself backwards. It's a strange way back from Valis all the way to the Man of the High Castle. So, Okay. Uh, and, and it's been a great journey. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's I really um, I found Philip K. Dick kind of a very prescient, a very a prophetic uh, voice uh, exploring some of the issues that uh, we um I mean all of us are experiencing today the the rapid dehumanization, mm. the rise of technology, and so forth, okay, and so you're a filmmaker yourself yes, yeah, so uh all along i I thought that uh, a lot of the science fiction films i'd seen are uh lack a certain amount of depth i mean I've always been drawn to uh films like two thousand and one uh of that nature they're really ex- almost metaphysical films okay so uh I, I I found that these films uh are uh, short and short supply so I decided that the way to go was to uh create my own festival. So I thought I was convinced that there are a lot of films out there that are deeper and more interesting. They may not they may lack the visual effects. However, they do uh, make up in story and narratives. So I decided well let me go ahead do this uh take take um, uh, set up a festival and uh see what would happen. So on uh, the first year of our festival was uh, very well attended. Um, this is more of a screening. So I decided at that time, that time there was definitely a market for okay. this kind of uh, film. And uh, so our official festival was in 2012.
1: And so you started the festival in 2012. Obviously, it must have been successful because you guys are still doing it. It's 2016. And that's, and that's awesome. And where have you been getting a lot of the films, these science fiction films, that have a little more depth?
3: Yeah, they they come from all over. I mean, in Europe, U.S., they're generally independent filmmakers uh, who have been uh, around for a few years.
1: Well, when I'm looking at the schedule for the original festival in 2012 here, there's a bunch of almost direct Philip K. Dick adaptations in the first festival, like uh, Radio Free, Album Youth. And for people who might be a little unfamiliar Philip K. Dick, I mean, how many big Hollywood movies have been made from his work? I mean, you start with uh, i mean, Blade Runner is probably the most famous, Minority Report, even that Scanners movie with the guy that played Robocop, Peter Weller, is a Philip K. Dick adaptation, isn't it? Right.
3: You know, uh, there's, there's been, I think the last time I caught it, there must have been about 18 films. I mean, there's some films I haven't seen uh, Hollywood style. I haven't seen their... Um, Philip became the darling of Hollywood, I think, uh, and it certainly has been one way of marketing uh, his image. Uh, our festival differs a little bit from your standard Hollywood film because, see, the average Philip K. Dick character was an everyday Joe. I mean, you know, he was not a superhero; he was not someone who, with superpowers, he just someone who had all of a sudden was thrusted in a situation which was a. Uh, beyond his control and 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 he tries to retain his dignity and his sanity in the midst of all this confusion and 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 craziness so uh in that way the a lot of the philip k the characters are differ significantly from the tom cruises or uh arnold schwarzeneggers right
1: i can think about arnold schwarzenegger in total recall when you say an everyman mr universe is not how i picture an everyman
3: exactly so you average so i thought that this is one angle we could definitely take uh I uh, have films that are either inspired or adapted by PKD, which are more faithful to the original. Uh, and indeed, uh, Radio Free Album is is probably the most faithful of all the films. This is uh, directed by John Allen Simon, an independent uh, director, but he has some very strong Hollywood connections. And it's it's an amazing film. I mean, it's uh, the character is basically a uh, uh, an average everyday you, you know person he's not a superhero and uh and we've had some shorts that were uh also uh inspired and some of them adapted okay. by philip k. Dick uh these come from uh public domain early 50s uh philip k dig shorts sure
1: like the stories that were in uh you know the the pulp magazines and stuff before he got into the novels exactly uh, 51 52 53 What got you interested in science fiction in the first place? You talked about one of your favorite authors and what inspired you to want to become a, you know, a storyteller of the fantastic in the first place?
3: Well, you know, one of my first, uh, most profound influences is an old Vincent Price film called The Fly, classic black and white. I, uh, I saw it when I was very young on uh, TV and, uh, I I this, this film really wanted me to go and become an inventor and a physicist. It had it had a direct influence on on my um on, on my upbringing and my background.
1: Except you didn't want to turn into the fly like you,
3: <laughs> you didn't want to become a bella fly or whatever. But I think the concept was see what science fiction illustrates is is, is uh, it opens doors to the imagination. So anything is possible. And, and then of course the other classics in the 50s and 60s these huh? The day the earth stood still, uh, war, war of the worlds, and so forth. Were also, um, children of, the, uh, uh, children of the damned. Mm-hmm. So, um, all great films. They're all like, uh, they're all allegorical of, of something else that's going on in the culture, and uh, just like the sci-fi, sci-fi films of today.
1: I think that's interesting too, because you know you talk about those movies that were. I mean, they were, especially, you know, take a movie like, you know, Village of the Damned and things. And they were movies that were made without the kind of blockbuster mentality and budgets and stuff that we have now so you didn't have to dumb down some of the ideas like a movie like the fly didn't have a gigantic budget the special effects were fun but it wasn't going to amaze the people with the special effects like you know we seem to be in that kind of mindset that we need to go to the movies to be amazed by the visuals instead of being moved by the story as much so it's, it's interesting that you started with those kinds of films whereas in the 70s, everything was big and in your face and Spielbergian and, and stuff from, you know, E.T. and Close Encounters.
3: Definitely. I mean, like, one of my favorites uh, is uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original one. Um, right. I, I thought it's a fantastic story. Uh, it, it's very powerful, and it was done on a, on a low budget, relatively speaking. Uh, some of the scenes that I find the most compelling are not the, even the uh, – the monster, the zombie scenes were a very simple scene uh, when the main character stops by a restaurant, finds out there's nobody there. And it's the middle of the week and it's supposed to be packed. There's an eeriness that, that truly um, uh, struck me. This, this is a really good writing, I thought, the, the voiceover uh, of, the, of the character, uh, taking it from the beginning to the end. Uh, it's, it's something you don't really see in today's films, and certainly not Hollywood.
1: And that's interesting because the Invasion of the Body Snatchers has gotten, uh, you know, got one big, big budget release in the 19th, uh, you know, remake in the 1970s and then another remake in the 1990s that was a little more intimate and, and lower budget. You know, I think that Body Snatchers also kind of relates to some of the themes that, you know, PKD, Philip K. Dick, he would put in some of his work when you talk about the authoritarian government, you know, the, the collective and and... The individual being crushed by something larger. I think those kind of things go right hand in hand.
3: Oh yes, I mean there is. Uh, in fact, uh, Philip K. Dick wrote a, a short story in the early fifties. It was very similar to the Body Snatchers. It didn't have the oh, 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 you know, comprehensive, like global uh, warning. It's more about interaction between a, uh, I think, a young man who finds that is. Uh, his parents or his neighbors are, are, are morphing into something else. So clearly, this is a, was definitely in, in Philip's uh, uh, mind, even back then. I mean, he, he, the central questions of Philip K. Dicker is, who are we? What is the nature of reality? What does it mean to be human? You know, these are the key um, questions. Is reality solid or is, the, is reality fluid? These are issues that he grapple with uh, all his life and in and, and his real life and in his stories. And it clearly shows in the kinda of, the characters. There tend to be the characters in the Philip K. Dick um, short stories tend to be solitary, or, or introverted, um kind of a bit uh, outside the mainstream. Yeah, and
1: even since his death in the early eighties, there have been so many, you know, movies and really his work has been popularized in the past thirty years and and used as a ton of influence on science fiction films. And, you know, I think he, he thought of himself as that outsider that he puts into the stories, like a regular guy who's just a little bit off as compared to the rest of the mainstream.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, he's, um, uh, he's kind of a, a visionary, I would say. Plus, you know, let's not, uh, forget that he did have uh, an experience, which, some might uh, regard as a, uh, a mystical experience. And then it came to the understanding that what we're living with is in a virtual reality, not a kind of a Matrix uh, simulation of the real. So uh, before the Matrix, you had already PKD, already, uh, you know, exploring that possibility.
1: Even just that experience would make a great movie, you know? <laughs> You know, just him experience, like just opening the door, the nurse, the pendant, hitting him in the head and waking up in the first century.
3: Yeah, that absolutely would be. Mm. It's
1: even his personal stuff can do that. You know, one of the things, too, you feel this when you read Philip K. Dick's stories, I think, is paranoia. Like, is it just me or when you're reading one of his stories, do you feel that there's always somebody out to get him?
3: Absolutely. There, there is definitely that element that's uh, outside one's control and that there is some agency, uh, worldly or otherworldly, other that is uh, not in uh, agreement with who he is and what he's doing. There is that sense that uh, the terrain upon, we, we, upon the, when we walk is, is actually not that solid, not that firm. It could give way to something else. There's a kind of a, a, a contingency. Uh, I mean, Philip K. is almost like a literary philosopher. You know, obviously he embellishes writings with science fiction, and and uh, but um, there is something there in the writing, and, and and also one thing that I come to observe is that his writing streams almost like a stream of consciousness. It's uh, maybe it had to do with the fact that he was writing nonstop mm-hmm. to uh, pay his bills, but it, <laughs> at their moment, that is almost like a. Uh, something that you might find enjoys, like in Joyce, like in a stream of... Because I, I have started reading uh, Ubik, or rereading uh, a few year, uh, maybe about a year ago, and after like page 10, I'm already extremely disoriented, feeling uh, very strange. And and I could understand, well, it's not the character. I barely got into the actual plot, and I'm already feeling dissociated. So mm-hmm. I started looking at the words themselves and the syntax, the grammar, and realized these guy's playing with grammar. He's... It's, it's almost like he's the voice of his unconscious reaching out to us. Yeah,
1: I think that's a, that's a good way to put it, because he used prose almost when you talk about that stream of consciousness style, in that uh, he would use the prose to set a mood, not just in the story, but he could use that like in your head. You, you, you're reading it when you talk about that feeling of... Oh, I got to, you know, you're 10 pages and you're like, you know, I got to take a break and kind of let all this sink in before I can continue. That really how it feels with a scanner darkly.
3: Oh, absolutely. And I think it's because of the, it's not just the content, but the 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 structure of how he uh, communicates content, that content that is in of itself uh, odd, unusual, you know. So it, it's definitely... Something A lot of people have accused uh, Philip, who don't know better, think, oh, he's just a poor writer, He didn't know English. You know, he didn't know English very well. In fact, if you read uh, Man in the High Castle, and there are some other early stories that are very well written. I mean, in that standard, more conventional conventional style. But uh, we come across Ubik and some of these other stories that are just outright bizarre. And you really have to, I mean, go with the flow as you read them. Because it has to do with this unconscious coming out. Breaking through. And I think that has to do in a way that's connected to his uh, experience in, back in 1974. I think his unconscious basically opened up, decided to take over. or uh, Sure. To take over. You know? I mean, it's, they're all connected. You know? I mean, there comes a, a moment in, in, a, in a writer's life that he was really uh, extremely imaginative and he lets his unconscious run amok. Uh, that there is the distinction between the, the archetypes become real. Mm. Uh, I mean, there are the other writers that have that unusual experiences, like Whitley Strieber, uh, his book *Communion*, where he, and encounters with aliens.
1: Oh yeah, we've talked about him a ton of times because uh, *Communion* was the book that
3: <laughs> that freaked me out when I was a kid. Like, changed my life. Oh, absolutely, I, I still can't read. I've fin- finished the whole book. There's something very really creepy about. I remember uh, starting uh, reading when it first came out and it just completely freaked me out and I had to put it down. And I said, well, this is unusual because I'm always used to reading tons of very strange, bizarre, out-of-the-world books. But this one, man, this is powerful. There's something there he taps into and that's something that he didn't construe. I think he experienced that reality and that's coming out. And the same with Philip K. Dick. I mean, he talks about his, uh, his valence experience and then he goes on to write a 10,000-page explanation of his experience which he never came to an absolute uh, conclusion the is his exegesis
1: it's th- that thing that it's you know to a guy like him these weren't just you know stories or whatever like it it felt like the uh the muse you know when it struck it overtook him in a way you know you look at stephen king you know a writer like stephen king and stephen king always seems to be in control of his narrative in the way of he knows that he's a guy that's just making up stories and having fun and you know, using whatever he dreams up in his nightmares and, then, and using it. Philip K. Dick, he feels like the type of writer that the story took him over, not he was in control of.
3: Absolutely. I agree 100% with that. In fact, uh, I would go as to say that the people who are drawn to Philip K. Dick are drawn by the same, I would say, the same muse. You see, in the early, you, you asked me in the beginning, well, what drew you to Philip K. Dick? I would say yes, Philip K. Drake drew me in. Before I even knew who he was, I was already drawn to that. Just the name. Very strange. There are two names in H.P. In, in, in Lovecraft and Philip K. Dick. And they're, and they're both interesting. Before I even knew what these guys were about, I was already drawn to that. It's almost like a pre-linguistic hmm. um, Uh, communication going on, you know, that's really what drew me. I mean, I already knew there there was some connection between Philip K. Dick and and my own internal neurology before I even knew anything about him, before Blade Runner, before any of that.
1: That's an interesting thing. I mean, because he talks about archetypes a lot, you know, like the Jungian archetype is something, and maybe it was that he knows the type of people you know he knew how to create for a certain type of person and he because he was that type of person and then he was able to
3: draw in and from what my reading says he seemed to be a an absolutely fascinating kind of person who would have talkathons with some for uh, about everything from uh, uh magic to uh james joyce to quantum mechanics to mysticism to uh religious uh, you know and this is i find this is very rare in today's world i mean there. There are a few people here and there, but most people today are specialists. They'll be very good in one area, but to go and ramble and talk about different areas and, and kind of cross-pollinate, mm-hmm. it's very rare. It's something you would see more back in the early 20th century, the polymaths, you know, yeah, and I think one of them, you know. You
1: know, I, I, I completely agree with that. And you, When you compared them to H.P. Lovecraft, and you talked about the talkathons and uh, the science fiction writers kind of communicating with each other and stuff, it was like Lovecraft had his writing circle. With, like, uh, Robert Block, who wrote Psycho, and—oh, we have a guy right in Wisconsin here, just—I can't remember his name right now, and it's gonna—I drive over his bridge all the time, but the guy who started Arkham Publishing, and also Robert E. Howard, who wrote Conan, like, they all— had this, they all were, you know, constantly communicating with each other and writing these pulp stories and everything and like bringing them together. And I, th- I think he was of that mind as
3: well. Definitely. He, he had his own people. And he also had people that continue. Uh, and that's, uh, Philip K. Dick, uh, a lot like Lovecraft, uh, lived in, in relative obscurity until maybe the last year of his life. I mean, he... He saw some, um, an economic payoff, maybe once, uh, once Blade Runner or uh, the script was accepted and became, but most of his life, he had a hard time making ends meet exactly like Lovecraft. And he felt like he was wondering whether the stories were, were meant it were worthless. I mean, this is the attitude. He felt isolated and cut off from, uh, from the mainstream, you know? Uh, but I think he had friends that, uh, uh appreciated and sure. uh. And they continue his work afterwards, you know. I think it's,
1: it's funny, almost, that you, you talk about that, because you see that, you know, like, Philip K. Dick had, like, one year, he got his payoff from Blade Runner, and then he's dead, you know, not too soon after. Yeah, it's a real tragedy.
3: I mean, and it's unfortunate. That he never got to appreciate it. Well, it never did. Maybe the last year he was, you know, obviously had some money, but it was all a part of the same uh, mixture, you know. With George Martin now... Uh-
1: <laughs> You can see that like he, you know, the same kind of thing he published and and he was involved in a lot of stuff, but he wasn't rich until the past couple of years because of Game of Thrones. And now at least, you know, in his late 60s, he finally gets the kind of fame and money that authors like Stephen King or Michael Crichton have had, you know, for 30 years.
3: Oh, definitely. Yeah. So uh, it it really, uh, the similarities between these writers, uh, Lovecraft and, and, uh, Philip K. Dick extend beyond just uh, the themes, but also in terms of their lifestyle and so on. And today, uh, some writers today are doing very well. They're living off their uh, creativity, and but that's uh, its rare. It's most of the time, most writers have haven't had that opportunity.
1: No, oh, that's definitely true. So, what particular films for this next festival are you really excited about?
3: Okay, so we we're doing a festival in um, two festivals actually in Germany and uh, in. Uh, Leo France. And there are a couple of good films that I think that are really worth... Uh, the first one is we have a film called um, uh, Piper in the Woods, which is a um, an, adap- an adaptation of, a, of an early Philip K. Dick uh, public domain story. And it's, uh, um, that will be shown at the Cologne uh, Film Festival. We have. Um, that's a great. That's a great little uh, film. Uh, we have. Uh, man, there's so many good ones. I mean, uh, in uh, in terms of pure abstraction, we have mm-hmm. a film called Qu- Quickeners that deals with uh, if uh, the, the future, a future world where mankind is connected to the hive. Something uh, they have basically remove all emotion from their uh, uh, from their from their existence except for a small group that are called Quickeners. And these Quickeners are actually, people have experiences similar to the, the Pentecostals. In fact, the whole movie works as a, as a mockumentary. So during this voiceover, that sounds like it coming out of the 22nd century, okay. we're seeing um, footage of Pentecostal um, uh, type uh, uh, subjects go, undergoing uh, 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 rebirth and and... and, and, and and other experiences. So this is inter- very interesting as well.
1: And if you guys listening don't know who the, the Pentecostals, when you think of the Christian sects where people like speak in tongues and snake handlers, those are the type of people that uh, we see in the Quickeners?
3: Yes, those are the people. In fact, this is, is uh, found footage of those people back from the 50s. Oh, so that's it's fun. not just a standard narrative film. This is an, a really experimental film. No, we have a film uh, called Reality Plus. It's um, it takes place in maybe fifty years, where everybody's able to simulate uh, how they like to look in front of others. So, so imagine, um, uh, say Zoolander, the kind of the comedic take of Zoolander, but with a Philip K. Dick twist. Um, very, I highly recommend it. It's very funny, uh, but also very human, very uh, moving as well. It's called. Uh, Reality plus with a plus sign.
1: Okay. Just to finish up, Dan, because I know you got to go here, where can people find out exactly where to see the, these films and how to attend the film festival if they're in the area?
3: So we have uh, the film fest, the website is called Philip K. Dick Film Festival Europe.com. So that gives you a, uh, the two events that we're holding in Europe uh, in October um, 14th and 15th and October 22nd. This will, one event will be held in um, Cologne, Germany, and the other event will be held in Lille, France. Uh, one last thing I want to mention is that at the Cologne event we have, and the Lille, we actually have two films starring former Blade Runner actors. Oh, that's fun. One of them is uh, Clones. Uh, starring Rodger Hauer. And um the other is The Art of Human Salvage. Uh starring uh, Edward James Olmos. These are shorts, but they have uh PKD influences as well. So both of these films will appear at the Cologne Film Festival. Clones will appear at the also at the Lil um uh, uh, France uh, uh, film festival.
1: Fantastic. And we'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes so you guys can check them out. And you can check out links to maybe watch the trailers of these movies too.
3: And uh, for all your listeners, we will be doing a U.S. and New York festival back in uh, coming in March. The dates haven't been set yet, but maybe between now and then we'll have another little chat.
1: That sounds great. So thank you very much for joining us today, Dan. And I hope those
3: European festivals go awesome. Thanks, Mike. And look, again, I appreciate the opportunity to share uh, this with your listeners and um, have a good day. Great.
2: Well, it's cool that you were able to talk to him and it sounds like they've got a very exciting event coming up.
3: I know.
1: I want to go to Europe to go to the Philip K. Dick Science Fiction Festival. <laughs> Me like, too. And then I want to go to the New York in January. That's probably a little more realistic if I, if I make it out yeah. to, to a science fiction film festival. New York's a little more realistic than Hedden across the pond but anyway it sounds like a lot of fun and you guys can find more information on that science fiction film festival uh and that has links to all some the cool films that are part of it and all the indie films that are part of it so you can get in on some of these future filmmakers who are going to be influencing the medium at othersidepodcast.com slash 109 that's right. So Wendy, I was out at the park today enjoying the weather because September. In- oh, that's nice. September in Wisconsin is um, well, it's just a, it's just about the best. Oh, it's this, fantastic. This is the time to be here, and it is. Uh, it was coolish, and the leaves are already falling. <sighs> yeah, so that's right. Winter's on its way. <laughs> Winter is coming, in the words of my that man Ned Stark. But that's right. Uh, the thing is, is that what it also means is Halloween is coming. That's our favorite. Nothing gets me more excited than Halloween, and this Halloween, we're going to be a big part of the Milwaukee Paranormal Conference. Yes, we are. I'm so excited. Yes, I am I am terribly excited at the Milwaukee Paranormal Conference, so we thought we'd have a friend of the show and conference director, T. Krulos, to do a quick preview of some of the stuff you can see at the Milwaukee Paranormal Conference. And if you can make it in person, we highly encourage you to be there. If you cannot, they're gonna live stream a lot of this stuff so you'll be able to see it online too. Very cool. And we'll be there recording so, so we can
2: give you a good recap.
1: Yes, we are going to be juicing the weirdness out of that paranormal fruit. <laughs> All right, well, let's hear what T has to say about it. T, how you doing today?
0: Hey, I'm great. I'm very excited for the conference.
1: We definitely are too. We're going to be making a big presence there this year, but uh, we wanted to get some details from you so that we can share it with our audio listeners on uh, where it is, what are the dates, and what they can expect. So let's start with when is it.
0: It's going on October 15th and 16th are the main days of the conference. We're doing a couple of like pre-conference stuff uh, Friday the 14th. But um, yeah, the the heart of the conference is going to be Saturday, October 15th, and Sunday, October 16th.
1: And for the people that are interested in in checking it out, where can they find the tickets for that?
0: Our website, milwaukeeparacon.com, has all of the information about the conference. There's a a tab right at the top of the page for tickets. Um, There's a, a schedule tab, so you can click on that and see everything going on.
1: Okay, and we'll make sure we link that in the show notes here. T, now we had a great time last year, no question, but I think you really upped the quality of the guests this year, so uh, let us know a little bit of some of the, the big names you got on the marquee.
0: Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, it's very exciting because uh, we're having a lot of people return from last year, but, but we've added a lot of new people, and um, we have the opportunity to bring some of these big name guests to Milwaukee for the first time, um, which is so exciting. So, um, you know, top of the bill, Lauren Coleman um, is probably the world's leading cryptozoologist.
1: I can't tell you, like growing up, how many Lauren Coleman books that I read.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, he's written so many books, uh, he's appeared on, on many, many television shows. He runs an international cryptozoology museum, uh, which I had the opportunity to visit. It's one of my favorite places in the world. Uh, bring him to Milwaukee for the first time. That's awesome. Um, we're also going to have, and uh, and this relates directly to your podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, Katrina Weedman is one of the co-stars of Paranormal Lockdown, and um, you know, we're doing a lot of presentations where a speaker giving a presentation with a screen and everything, but for her, I thought it, it might be a more interesting approach. To do like a QA talk show style of setup. So you and Wendy are gonna be um uh doing the interview with Katrina there.
1: Absolutely. We're going to interrogate her.
3: <laughs> it's gonna be fun.
0: Well, and it's such an exciting time to have her because uh they did a very successful season one um earlier this year, and uh they've already shot a lot of footage for a season two. And they're doing a paranormal lockdown Halloween special just a couple of weeks after the conference. So uh, it's just a, an exciting time to have her. Yeah, um, she's going to have a lot of
1: a lot of cool stuff to talk about. A paranormal lockdown. Plus, we got to talk about some of that paranormal state stuff in there too. And uh, anyway, Katrina's been around for a while, and she's got a ton of great stories. So I'm excited to meet her and uh, get all the fun paranormal skinny we can out of her.
0: Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Um, And so then just a couple other guests that that I'll mention. We have a lot of guests. There's so many, you know, I I couldn't even go into everyone participating. It's great. But um, Chase Kletzky, she's been with the Mutual UFO Network for for many years, and uh, she's their deputy director of uh, cases right now. Um, So she has a very interesting perspective on the UFO field, and um, we're happy to have her there. Uh, Ursula Bielski is going to be up in Milwaukee this year. We wanted to have her last year, but she she wasn't able to make it. But she has a new book coming out about Bachelors Grove Cemetery, awesome. and is going to be giving a presentation on that. And uh, Oh, and Chad Lewis, I wanted to mention, uh, is a new person this year. Um, we're really excited to have him. And actually, he's bringing his crew with him. Um, uh, they've got a... It's kind of an organization show called Backroads Lore that's uh, made up of him and um, Noah Voss oh, and yeah. Kevin Lee Anderson. So um, the the whole crew is rolling in, and uh, Chad's going to give a talk on lake monsters, which I'm I'm super excited about. Yeah,
1: Chad is so knowledgeable. We've had him on the show, and uh, I used to listen to his um, podcast and, and radio when he was on an Eau Claire, the Unexplained Radio. And so I, Chad's been at it for a while, and he's He's a fantastic guest who has an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, Midwestern lore. So that's, gonna be, that's really exciting for the legend tripping.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, and then Linda Godfrey is returning this year again, which uh, I'm, I'm glad that she's involved for a second year. And uh, the other really unique uh, bit of programming that, that we have that I want to mention is the Roswell debate. Um, super excited about it. Oh, man. Uh, these <laughs> these guys, uh, Donald Schmidt, uh, a lot of people know, has been researching and writing about the Roswell case for many years. He's had some best selling books on the subject. And uh, Mark O'Connell, um, and, and these are both guys that I know that you've had on. See you on the other side. Absolutely, too. Uh, Mark O'Connell, um, really interesting guy too. He he's actually written some scripts for episodes of Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, and he's currently working on a nonfiction book that's about the life of um, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who is a, a godfather of UFO research. That's right, really.
1: Project Blue Book.
0: So the two of them, it's very interesting. They're they're both uh, guests from last year. They're, they're both Wisconsin residents, uh, but they don't quite see eye-to-eye on uh, research st- techniques and stuff like that. So they're actually going to have a debate, a moderated debate up on stage, um, which we've got a debate coach from Lakeland College is going to be moderating it. And it's, it's very interesting. And it's not like um, anything that we've done so far, definitely.
1: If you guys have a chance, if you're anywhere in the Midwest, to make it down to this conference, uh, I think you're going to have a great time. It's, it's probably the best value of any paranormal conference out there, uh it, it's not just the, it easily is the best value, and I try to attend as many as I possibly can, and uh I think that you're gonna get some of the most unique stuff here in Milwaukee that you can get anywhere if you're interested in paranormal conferences so uh October fifteenth and sixteenth and that is at the u w Milwaukee student Union correct
0: yes yeah um it's a great space, it's a huge huge building and we're we're utilizing uh, a couple different spaces in the student union.
1: I'm encouraging everybody to come out and check it out because well, we're going to be there. We're going to be interviewing people and talking to the attendees as well as the people on the panels and everything. And uh, we're obviously going to do a, a summary uh, and a recap of the conference afterwards. But I encourage everybody to get down there because it's going to be fun. And if you haven't been down to a conference before, I don't think you guys realize how different it is when you actually get to talk to these people in person and how much fun... That is when you're at a social event and you're just everybody's just hanging out and talking about this stuff. Don't you feel like you get a different perspective on stuff?
0: Oh yeah, and it's a really good point that I should mention is all the people that I mentioned. Uh, we also have a large vendor exhibition hall, which is going to be in the student union ballroom, and uh, we have about fifty tables set up, including um, almost all of the guest speakers have their own table where they'll be uh, selling and signing books, if they have books, or, or talking about their organizations. So it's a, it's a great chance to not just hear them talk, but uh, you'll, you'll get to talk to them a little bit in person, have them sign a book if you want. And then the rest of the vendor floor, we have so many awesome vendors. Just, uh, we have artists, authors, uh, tour groups, all sorts of interesting people.
1: So it's definitely worth the trip, and you can find tickets, schedules, and the whole shebang at Milwaukee.com paracon.com thanks a lot for joining us t
0: oh thanks looking forward to seeing you next month
1: so i'm excited uh, to meet katrina from the paranormal lockdown (sighs) me too and i cannot wait to see the ufologist debate about roswell that's going to be really really good i bet yeah it's going to be the uh, first paranormal fist fight of 2016 (laughs) that's right so that's going to be a fun event. Really, I'm counting down the days. Yeah. No, I think that's going to be a good time. And plus, we're going to be playing some music, too, at there. So Woohoo. we're going to be playing a lot of the songs that you hear right on this podcast every week. And remember that you guys can check out all of that music. Um, we even have a YouTube channel now where you can take a listen to it. Yeah. And so we'll have that up for you. But you check all that out. Uh, Othersidepodcast.com slash 109 is where you can hear the song this week. Yeah. So uh, the most famous Philip K. Dick film adaptation is Blade Runner. And one of the things that Blade Runner is famous for is its soundtrack by the early 80s synth Vangelis. Yes. So you guys have heard Vangelis because you've heard the theme song, The Chariots of Fire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You've heard it, or you've seen it in a parody or something like that. Chariot's Fire is a great film. um, You should see it too, but Vangelis has a cool synthy soundtrack, and he really is at his top in Blade Runner. So we decided to uh, create a little Vangelis-inspired soundtrack this week and insert some quotes from Philip K. Dick movies in there.
2: All right, and what's the song called,
1: Mike? The Tannhauser Gate.
0: you for listening to today's episode you can find us online at othersidepodcast.com until next time see you on the other side
1: that's right and it's that time of the podcast right where we thank our wonderful patreon community and one of our sponsors Ned. Ned. That's right. He's at the level where he gets a special thanks
2: every episode. So, Ned, thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening.
1: Absolutely. And if you guys want to become part of that Patreon community, get shout outs um, and have discussions and things like that. Othersidepodcast.com slash donate.